As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
to the ones who fixate on people because they may want to hurt them sexually and may want to use them for sexual gratification. I do want to say that's very, very rare. Dr. Ahona Guha is a Melbourne-based forensic and clinical psychologist. She works with people who have abnormal behaviours, like stalking and arson, and tries to help them modify these and lead better lives and improve safety for the community. She also treats people who have experienced trauma, including people affected by stalking behaviours. It's all important work. Here's Ahona to tell us more. Hi, Emily. I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist, and I did a doctorate in clinical and forensic psychology at Swinburne. At this point in time, I work within two roles. The bulk of my time I spend working within a public forensic mental health team where we assess and treat people who present with a range of problem behaviours, and by that I mean behaviours that cause other people significant harm. So we're talking about things like intimate partner violence, sex offending, stalking, arson, as well as gender violence. I also do some clinical private practice where we predominantly work with victims of trauma, including people who have been stopped. And probably helpful for me to define forensic psychology for your listeners, because a lot of people are a little bit confused about what that means. Typically, when we talk about forensic psychology, we are talking about people who work at the intersection of the mental health system and the legal system. So for me, that looks like working with people who have engaged in in a range of offending behaviours that may have psychological needs behind them or possibly mental health diagnoses. There are people who do also work within the civil field. So that would include things like assessing medical legal liability, family court matters, child protection issues, all of that would sit within the civil field. So broadly speaking, that is forensic psychology as well as what I do within a nutshell. And we've known each other for a while. We follow each other on social media, but we also met over our mutual love of greyhounds. We both have greyhounds. And um, when I first met you, you were sort of head deep in a PhD. Have you always been attracted to this particular line of psychology? Because you work at the really pointy end of it. Yep. A very good question. To be honest, when I first started studying psychology, I thought that I was going to become a straight clinical psychologist, didn't have a huge interest in forensic psychology at that point in time. We're talking now about 11 years ago. I think over time, as I started studying abnormal behavior and worked within a range of fields, including as a case manager in family violence, I started seeing the, the range of ways in which people can hurt other people. And the incredibly complex reasons that you know people engage with in these behaviors. That was probably what drew me to studying forensic psychology, trying to understand some of these behaviors and trying to work out what we could do to probably, I would say, manage these behaviors as well as really reduce the risk that they continue to occur. That was probably what drew me to forensic work. And certainly I've always had an interest in trauma and working with victims. So that has continued through from the start of my work in psychology. And what was it that you actually focused on for your PhD? It was a very heavy topic from what I can recall. Yeah, look, it's a dinner party killer. People always used to ask me what my thesis topic was, and I would have to say child sex abuse. Largely speaking, what I looked at were the mental health and the physical health outcomes after child sex abuse. 
So we had a large scale database and basically went through histories and linked up the different services that people had accessed so we could see what the long term impacts were. And what did you discover about the long term mm. impacts? So people who had been abused tended to use mental health care services, so including psychiatry, psychology, as well as GP mental health care visits, and took a range of different medications that we commonly use for mental health conditions at a far greater rate than people who didn't have a history of child sex abuse, or I should probably say the general population, because we don't know whether our comparison group did or didn't have a history of child sex abuse. We also found very high rates of people accessing GPs and specialists for general medical care after child sex abuse, suggesting that there may be some impact on the health outcomes. We also found higher rates of death within our abused cohort, and that did include deaths by suicide, as well as deaths for medical causes and general misadventures, so things like drug overdoses where we couldn't establish whether that was suicide or not. It's a very important topic to look into, and I think the awareness about the ripple effect of these things just keeps growing and growing, doesn't it? Uh, of course, and I knew that going into it, I knew it was going to be a heavy topic, and I also vaguely knew what I was going to find because there's been enough work within this field for us to know about the impacts of trauma, but I think still very helpful for that to be corroborated and for that to be studied within a really strong research design so we can apply for funding for interventions because largely speaking up until this point we have ignored the healthcare impacts or the or the impacts on physical health we've tended to focus on mental health but now i think we are beginning to see that there are actual impacts on people's physical health as well as how fast they die or how young they die rather so extremely important work to be done and difficult work yeah. Yeah, definitely. It would have been incredibly, I think, distressing to do that work. But again, I guess with the, the broader benefit and there are people have to do this work. So there are people like yourself. And you keep in mind that you are doing this work for a reason and that you are trying to find out something that is ultimately going to help people, which definitely helps you with attempting to sort of manage your own private distress. Now, so in your day work, you work with both people who have been impacted by, as you said, abnormal problematic behaviours. So that's in your private practice and in your your public role, which is for a, a funded organisation that focuses on these kind of things. You work with people who are stalkers, for want of a better word, and also people who are affected by stalking. So why is this an important topic to talk about? A good question. So probably helpful for me to start by maybe defining stalking. Broadly speaking, when we talk about stalking, we are talking about a repeated series of, of intrusive acts into a person's life that are unwanted. This could be anything from calling people multiple times to sending a range of text messages to actually turning up at someone's house or place of work, sending them stuff in the mail, sending them presents, sending them flowers. People are a little bit surprised when I say that. But these can actually be frightening acts when you don't know the person who is actually sending this to you or, or when you have spoken to the person who is engaging in this behavior and said that you don't want it. It can feel very, very intrusive and quite violating. Sometimes stalking can take on a more sinister form where there is violence involved. But I do want to say that that is relatively rare. 
I think it's very important to talk about because there are a range of misconceptions within the field. I think often when I when I do highlight to people that they've been stalked, they're very confused and very surprised because they typically think that a stalker is a stranger hiding outside in the bushes, probably intending to harm you. People don't often realize that the person who is most likely to hurt you or the most likely to stalk you is probably a former intimate partner. I think it's really important to talk about this to raise awareness, to bust a range of misconceptions, to possibly give victims a sense of reassurance in terms of how they can better manage their own safety. Mm. Yeah, those are the main reasons why I think this is an important area. It's also very prevalent. Yeah, so in what I'm thinking that technology has actually increased the prevalence of stalking, is that true? Look, I would absolutely say so. I don't have any hard data to back me up on this. But just anecdotally, looking at the range of stalking cases coming through, text text messaging especially, as well as social media, would definitely be involved. And I would see a majority of the cases. There's something about being able to easily access a person's life that really facilitates stalking. It's also very easy, I think, to fire off a series of text messages or Facebook messages, whereas in the past you would have had to write someone a letter and there would have been a range of steps in between where reason could have taken hold. But it's very, very easy to very quickly make contact with people now, which certainly facilitates, I think, the more intrusive behaviours. And what are you seeing in your work around online dating and how that's impacting maybe people doing this problematic behavior or actual like flat out stalking? Look, it's a good question. Again, don't have any hard data on this because I don't think it's been studied. There's probably a PhD in there for someone who wants it. Anecdotally, what I hear from a lot of people who do engage in online dating is that they are presented with a range of intrusive behaviors. So people being really pushy very often people taking connections to an extreme and not backing off when they're asked to back off. I've certainly worked with a range of people who have stalked other people who found their victims on social media as well as different dating apps. So I think we're probably talking about a few things there. We're talking about broadening the possible victim pool. We are talking about people desperately trying to form connections, maybe without really knowing how. We're talking about people forming connections with people that they don't know. So there's no points of contact that they have in common that might actually inhibit that bad behavior. Because if you think about it, you would be hesitant to treat someone badly when you know that there's a friend in common. But because there isn't that more inhibitory element, I think people feel like they're entitled to behave in a way that maybe they wouldn't in the past. And it's also just, again, very easy to contact people using these apps and using social media. So what you just described to me makes me think that there are people who very deliberately go out to find people and maybe menace them if they don't get what they want. And there's also people who actually are a bit clueless and don't know that their behavior is is upsetting to someone. So can you explain a bit more about that for me? Look, I think it's more the latter, to be honest. There are a very, very small number of people who would possibly use these channels as as a way of finding people to harass. I'm sort of thinking, I'm trying to remember the name. Was it Glenn Hartland, the person who was convicted, I think, of rape and found his victims on Tinder? 
So that would be an an example of a person who did use a dating app to engage in sex offending. Largely speaking, the behaviors I see are not designed to be menacing. They sit more in the clueless realm. They sit in the realm of a person who desperately wants connection, but either doesn't know how to go about getting it and doesn't understand that maybe their behavior is a little bit more menacing or aren't able to take no for an answer because they might be more entitled or they might just be really swept up within the relationship. And you're right, the man Glenn Hartland was known as the Tinder rapist. Yeah, okay. And um, he was sentenced to more than 14 years in jail for raping three women and indecently assaulting another one. And he would find those women on Tinder. Yep. Okay. So I, I would say that people like that would be in the minority. They're certainly there. So I don't want people to feel everyone's clueless or that Everyone has their best intentions at heart because there are those people we have to watch for. But I would say certainly those people would be within the minority and the range of other people would be misguided. And how do you go about treating – so let's go to the extreme first. Do you treat people in your work that are, you know, sex offenders slash stalkers of that that ilk, of the the Glenn Hartland ilk? Yep. So within forensic psychology, we have a range of what we call risk assessments. So we try to understand exactly what a behavior is so we can assess what the risk is of that occurring again. With Glenn Hartland, he wouldn't technically be called a stalker. He would be a sex offender. Right. Because if you're thinking about the sort of behavior he demonstrated, I think it was within the context of what people may have thought was a possible beginning relationship. So it wasn't the pattern of repeated intrusive behaviors that were wanted. It sounds like he was possibly wooing the victims to eventually groom them, really. But it sounds like it didn't really fit into the stalking realms. He would definitely be considered a sex offender. Mm-hmm. And yes, we do treat them as well. Yep. You're correct. In this news article I'm reading now that one of the women that he raped had dated him for a few months and then she broke it off and then he entered her apartment and raped her. So, yes. That may then technically be fitting within the stalking realms, but that's certainly also also sex offending because it sounds like that might have been a vindictive rape or an angry rape after she rejected him. Mm. Difficult to know because I don't actually know the particulars of the case, so I'd I don't want to make any statements that I can't back up there, but he's definitely would be considered a sex offender with possibly some stalking behaviour in there. Mm. We did speak on our email exchange about that awful case of John Edwards. Now, we on a previous episode spoke to Megan Norris, who's a a writer and journalist who's particularly has for many years written a lot about violence against women and stalking, but we spoke about that. But that is really, I think that really shocked people about the behaviours that he he did and then the ultimate where he murdered his children and then his wife, you know, she, her life was ruined and she died by suicide. Yep. That was a very, very sad case and I think very similar to the other case we had recently, Sir Kelly Wilkinson. Mm. In that instance, I think her former partner after a period of engaging in stalking behaviours and certainly family violence while they were within the relationship, ended up setting her on fire and she very, very sadly died. So in both of those instances, we are talking about people demonstrating stalking behaviours, certainly intimate partner violence while they were within the relationship, but also unwanted pursuit of the victim after. And so in your day-to-day work with people who display these problematic behaviours, what 
is a, a typical week for you, Ahona? What would you deal with? So a typical week, we would do one assessment a week. So largely speaking, assessments are relatively comprehensive. So they start from the very beginning of a person's life. We talk about their personal history. We talk about education, their work history, alcohol and drug use, because that's a very common factor, physical and mental health issues. We talk about their relationship history, any past offending history as well as talking about the actual index offending in a lot of detail. So really what we're trying to do is to generate a case formulation. So when I say that, I mean really just trying to understand why the offending happened and what the different range of factors were that led to the offending. We are also thinking about what might be helpful in terms of treatment and management. And we are also doing a risk assessment to see how likely the behavior is to happen again, as well as what the risk of physical violence is. So that's one part of my job. So doing the assessment, looking at all of the collateral information, because as you can imagine, people who do engage in these behaviours sometimes under-report the severity of it. So we often get other reports as well as police reports and so on, so we can match things up. Doing a range of psychometric testing, so personality inventories and so on, to see whether any of those factors apply. I also treat a range of people who do engage in these behaviours and we also offer secondary consultations. So basically to other services who might be struggling with people who do engage in these behaviours. So you're really putting together a complete picture of these people, not just re- relying on the story from then, you're actually looking oh, of course not. around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. That's probably one of the key precepts in the field of forensic psychology and probably what sets it apart from the other types of psychology, because often with clinical psych, you will just work with what the person is telling you. Within the fields of forensic psychology, you absolutely have to have a police history. and you have to, you have to have a more objective view of what the offending has been about, because most often people will underreport. And I realise you can't reveal too much about the work you do, but can you give us an example of one of the most extreme cases of abnormal behaviour you've worked with, either stalking or otherwise you mentioned things like arson and sex offending, but what was something where you thought, wow, okay, this is pretty intense? Okay, obviously not able to provide a lot of information, but one of maybe the more severe stalking cases I've worked on, and this is severe not because of the types of behaviours demonstrated, but more because of the length of time. I worked with someone who had been stalking the same person, and this was a public figure within the local community for almost 20 years. This was in the context of a relatively serious mental health issue and was quite episodic, so it didn't happen all of the time. It happened more when this person became became unwell. But I think it was the sheer length of the stalking pattern that was alarming, really. Mm, that and especially like when it. you think about it from you know the perspective of the victim and what that would have been like, because it would probably have felt like nothing was being done and like nothing was working, even though there was a lot happening behind the scenes to try and stop this behaviour. Was there a resolution with that case? I think like with most of these more complex cases, it's a case of ongoing management of behaviours, really. So often our cases within the forensic world don't have a neat resolution, but it's often more about trying to reduce risk, managing and supervising very closely as well as treating any mental health health issues that might be there. People who exhibit these stalking behaviours, whether it's low level to that kind of situation, can they be fixed, for want of a better word? 
people can certainly change their behaviors. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be doing the work that I did. I think it can be very challenging sometimes, especially when you're working in the forensic world, because people come in with very entrenched difficulties. They often have a lot of different psychosocial factors that they have to take into account. So I'm talking about things like lack of education, lack of employment, lack of family support, alcohol and drug use. All of these things make it relatively difficult for a person to change their behaviours. Nevertheless, we do have good you know, success rates. I think the programme that I work for did a, a evaluation a few years ago and found that people who did complete treatment, because we have a high treatment dropout rate given by the forensic nature of the population, did actually go on to, I think it was offend less often and offend more slowly than people who didn't complete treatment. So it doesn't sound like the best outcome because I'm not I'm not able to say that well people went on and didn't ever offend again. But if we are talking about harm minimization principles, we are actually very, very pleased with that outcome that people are generally living better lives and not hurting people as much. Well, that sounds, that's definitely a step forward. Is there a more dangerous type of stalker than another? I know we've mentioned ex-intimate partner violence, but I mean, the stalker we tend to see in movies as well is the person who may just speak to someone for a minute and then become fixated. Does that actually happen? Look, it can happen. So when we work with stalking within the forensic world, we tend to divide stalkers up based on their motivation. So the former intimate partners are what we call rejected stalkers. So basically people who have been you know, rejected by a partner and have then become either fixated on the idea of getting closure or just don't want the relationship to end. The other typologies of stalkers would be those who are more resentful. So those who are angry about something and might be contacting someone because they want a wrong to be righted. Um, There are those who might be seeking or trying to pursue a romantic partner but don't know how. Then there are the stalkers you just talked about. So people who might become fixated on a person after a very brief encounter, believe that they're the love of the person's life and start to pursue the person. And then finally, I think we are talking about the really dangerous stalkers. So the ones who fixate on people because they may want to hurt them sexually and may want to use them for sexual gratification. Do want to say that's very, very rare. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. So in terms of whether there's a more dangerous type of stalker, I would probably say the latter category because they are embarking on the stalking behavior with with a view to hurt someone else, whereas in the other categories, they're probably more attempting to seek resolution or contact. However, any type of stalker, given the right circumstances, can be very dangerous. So we assess for that very carefully. And so on the flip side, do you actually also work with people who have gone through trauma, who have trauma, but also who are the recipients, the victims of this stalking behavior. Can you talk about what does it typically look like for people when they are subjected to this really scary behavior? Look, it depends. I think when I worked as a case manager in the field of family violence, and this was in my pre-psychology days, and I wasn't really using stalking language at this point in time, but I would see people come in and and they had identified that they were being significantly harassed and intimidated by this former partner. A lot of them were very highly traumatized. They certainly had a certain amount of post-traumatic symptoms that often did 
require both psychological as well as psychiatric treatment. At this point in time, the work I do, a lot of my clients come in knowing that something's happened. They talk about difficult relationships, and it's as we start to break it down that they often work out that they were stalked or that possibly they, they did encounter intimate partner violence that might be why their self-esteem is so bad or maybe why they're so anxious. After the break, Ahona tells us about her own online dating life and the red flags that will see her say, no thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're a young woman living your life. You're based in Melbourne. How do you keep yourself safe? Because, you know, getting out and about, you see a lot of stuff and you yeah. must pick up things about personal safety. What have you learnt and how do you keep yourself safe? Look, I'm not going to go through the very basics of personal safety because I think everyone knows that. I don't need to tell people to make sure that someone knows where you're going, to not go to a dark place with a person you don't know. All of those things apply. Look, broadly speaking, I, I tend to use clinical judgment a lot. And I, I know that that's not going to be very helpful for your listeners because obviously I have a set of training and skills around that. But broadly speaking, look, I look for intrusive behaviors. If I am talking to a person and I'm talking about this more within, say, the realms of dating, I mean, if they're persistently pushy, if they're pushing my boundaries, if they're wanting to meet somewhere that I don't want to go, if they're pushing to meet on a certain day when I've said that I can't, if they're bombarding me with relentless text messages or if they're not accepting that maybe I'm busy and can't text back and, you know, you start to get the what are you doing, why have I upset you, all of those sorts of texts, then that's an instant or those are a set of red flags for me and I very immediately block. Blocking is a very, very good and a very helpful tool that we all have now. So, you know, I'd say that I'm probably more aware than most people of where these behaviors can end up and 
honestly, I just don't have the have the energy to deal with some of these behaviors in my personal life because I do deal with them at work. So I tend to take quite a conservative approach. And if I do notice any of these boundary pushing, disrespectful or more intrusive behaviors, I do end communications very quickly. Occasionally, I'll give the person feedback. Sometimes I won't. Um, it depends on what I, on on suppose where I'm at and how I think the person's likely to respond. Yeah. Does that sort of answer? Yeah, it does. I mean, and we see sometimes from stuff that women share on social media about the absolute garbage fire that online dating can be that, you know, if they basically push back a bit in their, in the absolutely like appropriate way, these men come back with absolute like abuse. Exactly. And that's an instant block for me. So, I don't even attempt to argue with someone. I don't attempt to reason with someone who does engage in those behaviors. I will say that, largely speaking, by the time behaviors escalate to that level, I have usually noticed a range of boundary pushing behaviors first. It could be very, very simple things like making comments about how I'm not like other women, which um, is an instant red flag for me because they are effectively putting down the rest of my gender and that's not something I'm happy to accept but it's those really subtle things that you do notice with how a person talks to you how often they talk to you what they expect you to drop for them I've had people who've been very pushy about meeting at a certain day and time where I said that I'm tired and I can't and that for me speaks of disrespect so all of those behaviors are an instant no for me and it could be that I am possibly rejecting people who might who might actually be all right and may just be having a bad day but just personally for me that's not a risk that I'm willing to take. Do your friends often ask you for advice in this field? People share and talk about this a lot. I think people are often a little bit bamboozled by what to do and I think people generally think of forensic psychology as being more people working within the realms of crime. And I think people struggle to see that some of these behaviors are offense paralleling and that they could eventually progress to stalking behaviors, that they are actually not just a person having a bad day, but that they are reflective of a broader culture of disrespect. So yes, I do have people talk to me about dating, but often I hear people talking about these sorts of behaviors along the lines of what should I do? Should I keep talking to him? The answer for me is usually very clear cut and is a flat no, but um, I don't know if that's what people always want to hear. <laughs> Look, you mentioned um, earlier on that that some other behaviours that you work with people who commit arson. Now, Michelle, my co-host, and I have always been really fascinated by the the link that we've heard of between arson and other offences, including sexual offences. Can you speak okay. a little bit about arson and its place in these abnormal problematic behaviors. Okay. So I'm not sure about the link between arson and sexual violence. That's certainly not one that I've heard of before. So it's a myth we've heard possibly. Could be that I've missed something within the literature and I might have to go back and do some more reading and I'm really happy to do that. But I think what we generally see with the people who do engage in arson is that they're more likely to go away and to then reoffend in a different manner because people don't often engage in, in arson multiple times. So maybe that's the link that you're thinking about, that people do engage in arson and then actually occasionally go off and do engage in other types of behaviours. 
But also structurally, you might be thinking about the fact that people who engage in arson sometimes have issues with things like emotional regulation, managing distress, anger management, which might also contribute to them engaging in sex offending. I'm not sure if that's the link that's been drawn out here. So what's your experience then with the people you've worked with who have committed arson? I've seen arson committed a few times and arson is a very interesting one to work with because people are often very reluctant to talk about it. It's very, very surprising. So when I work with people who stalk, they may deny some of the offending, but at least they're happy to talk about the relationship and talk about what was happening within it. What I have noticed with arson offenders is that they often don't have a lot of insight into the things that may have led them to initially engage in that act. I have noticed that arson sometimes happening within the field of intimate partner violence as well as stalking, sometimes as a way of getting back at people, um, sometimes because people become angry and set things on fire because that appears to be the quickest way that they can show their anger, sometimes in a more deliberate way where they want to hurt the victim and go, well, you made me angry, you've left me, I'm going to set this house on fire. And then we've, of course, seen the other, the most extreme version where these men have set their partners on fire and killed them, which is horrific. With the Kelly Wilkinson case, that's what happened. That would be a very violent act. I mean, typically when I talk about arson or deliberate fire setting, I'm talking about people who set property on fire. Mm-hmm. With you know Kelly Wilkinson's case, that was very much an episode of stalking as well as serious violence. So if if someone is being stalked, and as you said, you know, it could be them receiving flowers, but it's very sinister because the attention is absolutely unwanted to people who are, it's actually a situation of intimate partner violence. Where can people get help if they are being stalked? So one of the first things that I would say to someone who thinks that they might be stalked is to log the behaviours. Very helpful if you do end up going to the police to have a log of what's been happening, to take screenshots as well of text messages as well as phone call logs and so on. If you think you're being tracked by GPS to go to the police and make sure that they check your car, I would take your phone to the Apple bar or you know wherever you go for phone stuff and get them to make sure that there are no tracking devices on your phone. That's definitely step number one. Step two, if safe, I would tell the stalker to stop contacting you. And this can be helpful because when you go to the police, you can say, look, I have said to this person that I don't want contact anymore, and yet they continue to contact me. So that can be helpful when things are being pursued through court. Sometimes I recognize that may not be safe. So I would say to use that one very, very cautiously. The police would definitely be your first port of call for this sort of behavior. So stalking is technically a crime here and I think punishable by a maximum of up to 10 years in jail. Police can also issue intervention orders, which can be helpful sometimes, but not, but not always because there are stalkers who will breach them. I think your local family violence service is probably a good place to go as well because stalking often happens within the context of a former intimate partner relationship. So 1-800-RESPECT in Victoria, I think, would be able to link you in with your local family violence service. Apart from that, your GP is a good place to get help, a local community legal centre. But I would probably be aiming to get to the police and my local family violence service especially if it was a former partner. 
Now, it's really good for, I think, for us to just keep getting this information out there. And you actually do some more specific work in this realm with people from, I want to say, South Asian community in terms of, would we say, Indian, Sri Lankan communities. Can you tell us a bit about that? Look, I have a specific interest in that field, obviously, because of my own background. I am I am Indian, but I don't have a lot of clients from that community at this point in time, apart from my forensic work. I suspect that's often because these sorts of behaviours are maybe more socially sanctioned within those communities and maybe aren't being reported, noticed and picked up on. It might also be possible that people are more hesitant to seek psychological support because of stigma around mental health issues, but it's certainly a field that I'm very interested in because I know that there are very high rates of intimate partner violence as well as stalking within the South Asian community and very, very interested in, um, I suppose, raising awareness and trying to get women to understand what might be happening to them and also reassuring them that there is hope and that there is help. And there are some services, aren't there, in uh, in Australia, in Melbourne, I know of a few services that cater for women from yeah. culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. I think it's called In Touch. Yeah, you're least. right. Yeah. 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 So that's obviously, from what you said, it's something that really does need to be worked on in the awareness about family violence. So we have a broader awareness in the community, but for specific mm communities within our community they need to know more i think that they need to know more and i think that there are also specific factors that do mean that people are hesitant to find out information or to or to actually open up the conversation i know that indian culture for one has a very strong concept of shame so talking about things like this acknowledging that there is violence within the home would be would be seen as being shameful people would not even want to have the conversation so i think it's certainly very important to notice that there are cultural factors that might stop someone from actually starting to think about these issues or if they are thinking about and possibly noticing that something's wrong, knowing what to do about it. So when you see headlines and the stories that we see and are all shocked by in particular with, you know, the Kelly Wilkinson case, just it seems all the time there's women being subjected to violence. What goes through your mind, both as a a woman but also professionally? Look, professionally, I'm often unsurprised, which sounds really sad, and I should probably caveat that by saying I wish it didn't happen. But I know that at this point in time, we are not adequately in a lot of different jurisdictions identifying people who are at high risk of of engaging in these sorts of behaviours, and we are certainly not treating them appropriately. We have um, very, very limited treatment services for people who do engage in in, in intimate partner violence. And the services we do have don't have very good outcomes in terms of actually reducing risk. So it's not overly surprising to me, given that context that we are seeing these cases, because we're simply not able to, or we simply aren't using the information as well as the knowledge that we have to be able to identify people who are at high risk. I think just looking at the John Edwards case, for instance, there were a range of very, very blinding risk factors in there that if any forensic psychologist with any expertise in stalking risk assessment would probably have have immediately identified him as being at very high risk. Certainly sounds like there wasn't the opportunity for someone to conduct an assessment in that sort of way. So professionally saddened, but not shocked, wishing that there was more I could do 
to affect change and sort of raise awareness within the space, which is probably one of the reasons why I contacted you as well, just to start to have this conversation. Personally, just really sad. It's always sad when a person is hurt. I know the ripple effects of violence on people. I know the impact it has on their families, the impact on my clients who have been victimized, the impact on my colleagues. Yeah, it's um, it's a very tough space that you work in, but a really interesting space. And so final question, Yep. ideal world situation, which we know the world is not ideal, but what are some of the answers? What's the solution from your perspective? Look, I think there are certain jurisdictions like over in, I think the, I want to say the, the Scandinavian countries where they have a range of excellent police-led initiatives that do work with victim safety organizations, and those have actually had excellent results of keeping people safer. I think we need to be doing more risk assessments, a very clinical term, but we need to be looking at risk in a very different way, especially when we're talking about intimate partner violence and stalking, because we have a lot of expertise within this area, but it's not being used properly. I think we need to be looking at treatment as well, especially within the realms of intimate partner violence and looking at the crossover between intimate partner violence and stalking to see what can be done there. I think it's excellent that there's a lot of money and funding being put into into keeping women safe, but I think also incredibly important to be directing some of that money into actually treating perpetrators to ensure that we do reduce the risk that they will reoffend, or at least if they if they are identified as being at high risk, that we can adequately monitor them. It's almost like I'm speaking from a female perspective because, you know, I'm a woman, you're a woman. It's almost like we, we sort of have inbuilt risk assessments that we do in situations, but it's just about, like yeah. you listed all those things before, it's about having more education to, I guess, keep identifying situations. And I want to say that it's not up to the victim to keep themselves safe, that it's up to the entire service system to come around a person who is being treated in this way to actually listen to their fears. Because we do know from the Kelly Wilkinson case that she did contact the police, I think, daily leading up to her death. That's right. So that was a catastrophic failure. There's no other way of putting that. So I think it's very important for us as women certainly to be aware. And I want to make it very clear that I'm not victim blaming here because I think that ideally these behaviours wouldn't happen, but important for us to have a bit of a radar out, but really important for other people as well as broader services to be able to come together and protect people and to be actually assessing the risk and thinking about the risk in a very clear clinical way. Because I just listened to myself then and it's almost ingrained for me to default to, well, what can I do to keep myself safe when I'm like, well, why why should I have to be doing that? Why can't I just be safe? And, you know, there are times where I do go out for a walk late at night and I take my dog with me, like we've talked about before, we both have greyhounds. But I do that because I have this anger. I I have this anger that I shouldn't have to be trying to keep myself safe in this way, that I should just be able to take my dog for a walk at 10 o'clock at night if she wants. And I know that there are risks within that space, but I do sometimes adopt the policy and I'm not at all suggesting that that other people should, but I know that this does anger me sometimes, that there's this range of things that I should be thinking about to keep myself safe. Safe for us, really, we should all, regardless of gender, be able to be safe. And yeah, hopefully that's what the broader field of forensic psychology is working towards longer term. 
That's right. And I did forget to ask you, it's not just men you're working with who are displaying problematic behaviours. Do you work with women as well? Yep, we do. So we certainly have a lower proportion of female perpetrators who come through our doors, and that's very much aligned with what we know about female offending. So women offend far less frequently than men, and when they do, there are there are often other psychosocial factors that do cause them to offend. But we certainly do see, you know, women who do engage in these problematic behaviours. And yeah, I have I have a range of female clients. I assess them, female clients. I treat occasionally the target that I treat are a little bit different. So when I talk about targets, I mean the types of or the actual reasons that people might be offending that we that we do need to work on psychologically. But regardless, the behavior is often very similar. Well, thank you so much for chatting. It's been a really enlightening conversation. I think just generally about how we can all be safer and just to understand a bit more of the work that you do. So thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you for the work that you're doing in this space. Thanks, Emily. If you have heard anything in this podcast that has affected you, there's places to get help. You can call Lifeline on 131114. Call 1800 Respect or go to the website if you're experiencing violence or abuse. If you are in immediate danger, please contact the police. In Australia, that number is triple zero. Thank you to our guest this week, Dr. Ahona Guha. Ahona is active on social media and invites people to ask her questions via her Instagram and Twitter. The details are in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to everyone for listening to Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Update for Brisbane Australian true crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.